This information is subject to a disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Please ensure that you listen to the disclaimer and go to www.ubs.com for further information about UBS. Hi, thanks for tuning in to this podcast today. Um, I'm Yiding Lu from UBS Fundamental Analytics team. And on this t- podcast today, we'll talk about taxes. I'm joined here by Jeff Robinson, who leads the Fundamental Analytics team. Thanks, Jeff, for joining us. Hey, no problem, Yiding. It's actually a refreshing exercise for me because it's usually me who's sat in your seat uh, <laughs> kind of asking the question. So it, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a bit odd being on, on, the, on the other side. But yeah, delighted to, uh, to join you and delighted to be on the, uh, on the other side for a change. Great. Thanks, Jeff. So why do we talk about taxes in the first place? What's so important about taxes? Um, well, I have to say it's, it, it's <laughs> I mean, taxes is incredibly complicated. Um, each country has its own tax code. A lot of these tax codes have kind of developed, not so much in isolation, but a lot of them are very old. Um, mm-hmm. They haven't changed a great deal, especially with how you know the digital economy has has developed over the last kind of thirty years. So they're quite old, um, they're quite insular, and mm. they're complicated. They're they're detailed, and I've always felt as as an analyst, it's it's really hard to model taxes properly. It's really hard to to forecast out taxes, and I think my experience, and I, you know, this is a critique of myself in yeah. my kind of younger or earlier stages of my career is hmm. it was something because it was hard and I had this driver when I modeled which is an effective tax rate and I'm sure most of our listeners have come across an effective tax rate it's it's very much a, a proxy that says for x amount so x amount of profit we're paying Y amount of taxes, and it's just a mm. you know a percentage of a one number divided by the other. I had that as my as my driver, and you know human beings are um, are notorious for seeing something that's complex, and then really trying to simplify that complexity into quite often a a a, a single number like an yeah. effective tax rate. So when people and I say people, including me. Uh, when I've forecast out taxes in the past, I've kind of had this complexity. I've had this easy solution and effective tax rate. And then I've just kept the forecasting very, very blunt and very, very simple. And the danger there is is that you sweep something that is really quite complex almost under the carpet. And if you're doing that in evaluation, um, you know, taxes, you know, they take a reasonable kind of bite out of the cash flow apple so to speak and if you were to get that wrong or certainly inconsistent with the rest of your valuation it's going to possibly lead to some quite serious problems so that's why certainly as a research analyst um i've i've written an awful lot on that since you know the team came into existence i mean we really got stuck into you know when trump got elected back in 2017 the tax cuts and jobs act we wrote numerous notes on how that was going to affect the S&P 500 names. But it's also really in the context of um, when I've got my research academy hat on and I'm teaching people how to value companies. I think tax is just incredibly important because of the size of the cash flow grab. 
it takes mm. out of evaluation and the problems and the biases that we have when we forecast there's a real danger there of oversimplifying yeah. uh, what is something that is quite complex and so that's why we've written i i i'll put my hands up straight away and say listen i'm not the tax expert that knows everything mm -hmm. about us tax codes or european tax codes mm. but um you know what you can do is that you can be more informed about yeah. how taxes and tax codes will uh, evolve over time and having that information is going to be really useful when you start kind of um throwing that thought process and that knowledge into your forecasting so kind of um competitive advantage that you can create that as an analyst where you can you know you, you can get your head around what's happening with taxes where things are going over the next x number of years because now you know these tax codes are, and i'm sure we'll come on to speak of that um uh, over the course of this podcast those tax codes are in a state of flux you know the us has been you know modifying its task tax code kind of continually um mm. certainly over the last five years and you know the europeans are after it the oecd are getting involved mm. um i think the more you know your view is informed the better questions that you can ask of well what would happen if that would uh, that tax change were to go through what insights could i pull out of that yep so, so you mentioned just now that most of the tax framework are quite old yeah and doesn't really work very well for the new digital economy so yeah. what's the, really the problem there with the, the new digital economy well, I suppose it's, I mean, it's probably not the problem with a new digital economy. I mean, that's life, you know, life kind of evolves. But yeah. it's the fact that if you, if I, I mean, this has probably been a bit too blunt and um, probably a little bit twist of irony in my voice, is the fact that most of these tax codes really have, you know, their origins probably in the 1920s. I mean, Cranky, you can go back even further into history. I mean, the Romans did tax, though. So I don't want to take you that far back into history. But if you think about the way traditional tax frameworks were built, yeah. they were built really on the concept or based on the concept of permanent establishment. So if you were permanently established within, let's say, France, mm -hmm. you paid French tax. Now, back in the olden days, you know, which my son would think would be like, you know, the, the early 2000s, I'm talking kind of back in the olden days for me in the 20s or the 30s, you know, if you wanted to operate in France and you were a US business or a, or a UK business, mm -hmm. is that you went to France, you bought some land, you built a factory. Mm. Right? And you built a factory, you established maybe a incorporated entity in France, and um, mm. that would make you permanently established. And so you're generating, you're, so you're operating in France, mm. you're physically located in France, you have an entity in France. Well, of course, it makes perfect sense. You pay French tax. Yeah. Now, that's back when, you know, you know, the world was built around heavy industry. Now, since the 1980s, obviously, we've got more and more kind of IT savvy as a, as a world economy. And now what, what can happen is I can be located pretty much anywhere in the world mm -hmm. and I can remotely sell into France. You know, I don't have to have that permanent establishment. And we've seen this in the press over a number of years where you've got a, I don't know, you have a tech company, we'll not mention names, but you can think about what names you like. That name is, uh, is permanently established in, in, in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Guess what? That's a great idea because the Irish tax rate is 12.5%. Mm. 
So, you know, being established in Ireland, you know, you think about all of these tech names that you've heard of, you know, it, it's not because, you know, their love of Ireland, it's, <laughs> it's the attraction of a 12.5% tax rate. That's your permanent establishment, your headquarters. And then you take that entity and what it's able to do because it's a digital business, it's a tech business, it's able to sell into different parts of the world like France, for instance, yeah. Um, without having that permanent establishment there. And if it hasn't got the permanent establishment there, it's not paying, you know, the French corporate tax rate, which is up there near 30%. Um, it's paying the 12.5% in Ireland. So it's really the fact that um, the, the, the international, not even the international tax codes, but the individual country jurisdiction tax codes haven't really evolved for that. And so when you've got these... Um, these lower tax jurisdictions around the world, yeah. you have these intangible asset-based businesses. Um, it's made it easier to, um, to, to, to move profits around the world. And it's something the OECD has been focused on for, mm -hmm. for, 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 for many years. Mm. It's this idea of, and they abbreviate it, abbreviate it to BEPS, which is B-E-P-S, which is base erosion and profit shifting. So profit shifting is moving profits into lower tax jurisdictions, right? Base erosion is making sure that your tax base, your taxable profits are as low as they possibly can be. Now, quite frankly, you know, if you go back into, into case law, um, mm -hmm. you could argue actually companies have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to base erode and to profit shift as long as they are following, at, at the very least, the letter of the law, if not the spirit of the law. And um, what's kind of felt over the last, let's say, 20 years yeah. is that what some companies have done is that they've really pushed those boundaries. So really what you've got kind of globally at the moment is a desire to make sure that the right companies are mm. paying an appropriate amount of tax mm. in the right country. And that's right. where international tax form, whether it be kind of US, UK, or the OECD as a whole, is is uh, is starting to kind of lean towards. Right, and and so you mentioned that there's um, been a flux in those international tax codes in the last mm. five years. Mm. What exactly is being done there to to solve the problem? Well, that's a massive, massive question to be honest, because there's there's lots of individual kind of ideas that are, have been kind of bounced around you had um you know trump you know back in 2017 introduced yeah. this wonderful um abbreviation it wasn't him it's was obviously his tax advisors that are, <laughs> are working on the tax code called guilty you know and it kind of feels like somebody spent, spent so much time thinking let's <laughs> think of a you know a collection of words that gives us a cool abbreviation now guilty stands for um, global intangible low taxed income and mm -hmm. it's a concept that's unique to the um, the US tax code and what guilty does is it's a stick effectively and um, it's basically trying to tax um, foreign overseas income generated by US companies. And it's very much kind of trying to focus on intangible assets that are moved overseas by US companies, usually into lower tax jurisdictions. And without getting too much in the detail with Guilty, is Guilty comes up with a proxy tax base to say, well, actually, 
you've got um, X amount of profit generated in uh, in another jurisdiction. Let's keep it really bland. Now, mm. the amount of profit that they're generating is is really high. Now, if the amount of profit you're generating is really high, effectively like on a returns analysis basis, um, mm. they're saying, saying, well, the only way you can get really high returns is that you must have intangible assets in that jurisdiction. So what we're going to do is we're going to tax that kind of excess super normal profit. And we'll tax that, and it'll be taxed and brought back into the U.S. Treasury. So that's something that you know the the, the Trump administration introduced in 2017. It's something that Biden um, kind of picked up the baton on that, and mm-hmm. essentially was looking. And you know, we're talking now at the stage when we're doing this podcast that these proposals are still at the proposal stage. Is that they're trying to make that guilty stick bigger? So the current guilty rate, according to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, was 10.5%. Yeah. Uh, the intention of the Biden administration is to double that to 21%. So that's what the U.S. were doing. Um, now, what was sort of indicative of kind of the partnership that the Biden administration is trying to set up with the rest of the world mm. is um you know they came out also in support of a minimum corporate global tax rate you know the idea that you basically don't stop countries you know countries should always be freely allowed to set their own tax rate but he wanted the G7 wanted to introduce a concept that if you set a tax rate of 10% yeah. Um, there was a flaw in existence globally that said, right, the minimum tax rate is 15%. So let's say, I don't know, Yi Ding, you, you're in a particular country. Yeah. Your, your company gets taxed at 10%, mm-hmm. uh, but your company is a subsidiary of a U.S. business. Yeah, so the yeah. U.S. parent company would look at the tax it's paying in the country, wherever you are, wherever you're located, you're paying 10%. Mm. There would be this minimum tax rate. Let's call it 15%. Yeah. And what would happen is um, I would have to look at those numbers and think, all right, we're paying 10% in that country. All right, there is a top-up 5% payment. Okay. That moves you from 10% to 15% that I will tax on those profits. And again, it would be paid into the treasury of the parent company's local country. And so by doing that, it kind of negates the benefit of you locating in this 10% jurisdiction because ultimately the parent company ends up paying 15%. And what that's trying to do is kind of disincentivize uh, the idea of locating in lower tax jurisdictions because essentially 15% gets taxed and it all comes out in the wash at the end. Now, what's the right way rate to actually set 15%? 18%, 21%, that's always going to be the perennial question because, mm. you know, 15% might be the lower the tax rate is, the easier, obviously, it is to get agreement globally. Yeah. Um, but the lower the tax rate is, the less of an incentive or yeah. disincentive it actually is to companies profit shifting around the world. I mean, you had a lot of European finance ministers talking about a rate of 20-21%. Now, that causes lots and lots of political issues because at 20-21%, you are picking up probably maybe, if I'm guessing, 20% of the OECD countries and basically saying your tax rate's too low, we're going to tax you at a high rate, ultimately. Whereas Mm. at 15%, I mean, interestingly, if you look at the G7, um, out of the G7, no member of the G7 has a corporate tax rate below 15%. So a 15% mar- um, minimum 
corporate tax rate really has no effect on the G7. It has effect on, you know, for instance, Ireland at 12 and a half percent. You know, so those types of things are are happening and Mm. you can have all the proposals in the world. Um, But the the issue with the proposals is then getting agreement. So the G7 saying, hey, we like this framework is a great start and it provides momentum. But that framework, uh, and at the time that we're recording this uh, uh, this podcast, uh, mm. is that the the framework's been agreed, but not a lot else. You know, they talk about okay, we will apply these new rules to large and profitable companies, and they don't really define what large is. They don't tell us whether we're going to be applying these rules to consolidated numbers, or whether we're going to apply them to individual company numbers one of the pillars in the initial g7 framework um mm. is essentially a um a reallocation of profits to mm. individual tax jurisdictions and that reallocation of profits only kicks in if you're deemed to be profitable and profitable has been defined as having an ebt margin an earnings before tax margin in excess of 10 percent so the, the 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 idea here is is that these rules probably need to be implemented at at, at a segmented level. Now, whether a segmented level is a kind of business unit level or an individual entity level, I guess is still up for grabs. To, you know, so you've got all of these kind of um, politically sensitive discussions and, you know, getting agreement between seven major developed economies yeah. is one thing. Getting it kind of uh, agreed with the G20 Again, you know, there's good hope there. But once you get to the OECD, that's 137 countries, I think, off the top of my head. Um, yeah. That becomes hard. And you've got, you know, the developed world mm. relative to the developing world. And, you know, this almost becomes an ESG kind of um, concern, certainly at the, the social and governments level, governance level of making sure that countries in the developing world certainly are getting their fair share, the tax take, from these big kind of multinational corporations. So it's an incredibly fraught area of, of discussion. But then you've got to bring all of this back and then actually start thinking about, um, well, I'm, I'm thinking about all of this. How do I factor it in into valuation? And I suppose I, 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 we should talk about that a little bit. I mean, um, yeah. you so know, so the, how do you factor it in? Oh, very. It's not easy. I'll tell you that. It's not like <laughs> when to say, hey, here's the holy grail and you just do X. Um, but I'll give you I'll give you an example of yeah. uh, we'll, we'll just kind of cut everything back and try and simplify this. Now, let's just ignore the G7, ignore the Biden tax proposal. Let's say, you know, we're back in that kind of, uh, you know, Trump got elected for a second term. Let's have that kind of scenario. Um, now, I'm reasonably. Let's how do I phrase this? I have a reasonably strong conviction mm-hmm. that when the market is looking at uh, U.S. companies, and we've written on this, so this is a published view, is that when the market is looking at U.S. companies, I don't think it was really factoring in that irrespective of Biden getting elected, that, let's pretend that didn't happen, yeah. that U.S. effective tax rates were going to increase. And why is right. that? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, and the reason for that is you need a little bit of knowledge of the U.S. tax code. Now, trying to get legislation through in the States is, is really tough. 
All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cut a long story short, you need sixty percent majority in the Senate. All yeah. right. And that's tough to do because you know either you've got to have a big majority to get stuff through, or, or you can't. Now there is always a kind of a joker that you can play um, in in the Senate. It's not a joker you can play on or, or, um, every single time you want to get legislation through. So it's a very limited joker, and it's mm. called reconciliation. Now reconciliation allows you to pass revenue spending bills with a simple majority of over fifty. All right, but. Okay. The, the, the kind of caveat to that is is that you've got to have a budget-neutral 10-year window, all right? So you can't have right. a situation where you pass legislation and you increase the size of the budget. And right. so when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act went through, um, you know, all the headlines were about dropping the tax rate from 35% down to 21%. And that's on a marginal basis. Again, as, a, as an, uh, an analyst or investor, you really need to be thinking about, well, that's all well and good, but effectively, what were we paying? And, you know, the S&P 500 pre the tax reform uh, and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, on average, was probably paying an effective tax rate around about 24% in the S&P 500. So it's more thinking, where do we go from there yeah. when we have this tax cut? But anyway, by the by, so tax legislation goes through. Now there wasn't enough funding in that tax legislation to basically keep all the tax code benefits mm. in perpetuity. And I'll give you one example. Um, one example back in 2017 uh, was if you spent money on capital expenditure, okay. um, you'd get a 100% tax deduction, which is amazing. You know, So that really encourages you to reinvest back into your business because you spend a million, Dollars, you get a million deductible in your tax base, you know, and you apply a 21% tax rate to that. That's an immediate year one tax saving. So that's yeah. really encouraging kind of investments, you know, very much pushing it, investment back. Any tax benefit obviously is reducing tax revenues into mm. the tre- in the treasury. And so they couldn't afford to keep that into perpetuity and still be budget neutral on right. this 10 year window. And so from 2022, that rate, that 100% rate stars to taper down 80%, 60%, 40%. And so it kind of normalized. So it's almost like a reversion to the old mean. And um, if that's happening, and again, we'll ignore everything else that's going on, what you should be thinking is, okay, no change really in tax code legislation, but because of the sunsetting of these provisions, mm. the amount of benefit that I'm going to be getting against my tax base is going to fall. And that's going to lead to a situation where there's going to be higher taxes paid as we go forward because of the sunsetting of those provisions. Right. All right. And you've obviously got to know something Mm. in order to reflect that view to see what the insight would be and the impact on what your equity valuation would be. Because, again, that could be quite material. Um, over a kind of a, a long-term basis. And it's a question I think we, we do need to ask. Now, going back to the big quick picture of um, how do you reflect this in valuation, I'll tell you why it's hard. Um, it's hard because most of us, me included, um, mm. we don't know enough about taxes. All right, so there's 72,000 pages of tax legislation in the U.S., um, and that's just the U.S. It's not all the other countries that companies may operate. So we we don't know a huge amount of tax uh, uh, on tax. That's not going to change. Um, tax disclosures in yeah. a 10K or an annual report are accounting 
tax disclosures. So they're talking about tax charges. They're talking about deferred taxation. There's hmm. nothing really in there in sufficient detail to give us real clarity on how guilty, for instance, will perform over a longer period of time. And associated with that, I mean, what would be really useful, and we have a bit of it when we pick up a 10K or an annual report, is segmental analysis. You know, I want to know, you know, how much profit is generated in Ireland, in the UK, in France, if I mm. really want to get behind those tax charges. So for that reason, you know, in terms of it's hard, it's complicated, there's lots of detail. Disclosure, you know, it could always be better and more detailed. Um, you know, we're on the back foot straight away. Yeah. Now, what does help us is we have this effective tax rate that says, well, actually, I can see I pay taxes of X. I had profit of Y, one divided by the other. That gives me effective tax rates. I can apply that to my numbers going forward. Again, the not so great thing to do then is to apply the same effective tax rate going forward into perpetuity because, A, the tax code may evolve, but also your business may evolve. I mean, if a company, I mean, I'll ask you this question. You know, if I said to you, um, you've got a company that's maturing, yeah. um, it's CapEx, it's yeah. kind of normalizing down to depreciation, what yeah. would that do to its tax? Should what, what, what would the answer be? If you increase? Yeah, so your tax is going to increase because if your CapEx is falling, the amount of accelerated tax deductibles you're going to get is also going to fall, increases your tax base, even yeah. if your marginal tax rate remains the same, you're going to pay more tax. So not only do you have to think about, you know, um, the tax code evolution, you've got to mm. think about your, um, you know, the evolution of your, your business model as well. And I see that an awful lot where, you know, you look at the tax line, you think, actually, there's no behavior in that tax line. You know, it's not reflecting what's happening with the tax code. It's not reflecting what's happening with the business model. And there's an inconsistency. And, you know, if anybody's read my work over the last kind of four or five years, you know, I bang on time and again about this narrative consistency. If, you're, yeah. if your narrative isn't consistent, you know, your valuation is just a whole bunch of numbers stuck into a spreadsheet. And there's an answer there, but it's just a number. It's not giving you really testable insight that you can then back up with data you can't start thinking about well what's priced into the market and whether that's plausible or not plausible in terms of your investment recommendation so you know the the valuation is difficult mm. but i think with a bit of knowledge um you can get some really nice insights in, in that respect now the, the other thing i would say is um you know don't 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 stop too early because you know the first order implications here when you are valuing a, a company and you're thinking about taxes okay if tax i don't know let's say there's an increase in the marginal tax rate you know the easy thing to say is all right so marginal tax rates are going to increase that'll probably increase my effective tax rate yeah. if i pay more tax i have less cash flow if i have less cash flow my equity value falls yep yeah and i think that's fine you know, and I think you've got to work through various little scenarios there, making sure, again, it's consistent with how the business model is operating. But I, I think it's um, it's a missed opportunity, let's say, if you just stop there. Because the other thing I would be thinking about is how am I paying for that extra tax? Now, mm. is it getting paid out of real kind of proper excess cash flow? If it's getting paid out of excess cash flow, I think the implications are quite different to 
it's getting paid out of cash flow I would like to use elsewhere. Because if that extra tax is getting paid out of cash flow I'd like to use elsewhere, the second order implications there are, well, what's it going to do to my reinvestment? Right. Yeah. And if I can't reinvest as much as I would like to, I'm not just talking about buying new plant property and equipment. I'm talking about R&D investment, working capital investment. If mm. I can't kind of pump cash into what is the lifeblood of that company, mm. what's it then also going to do to future growth rates and future mm. margins? And those are the second order implications I certainly would like to kind of try and capture, at least ask the question in my analysis. Now, there is a little bit of kind of almost countless cyclical good news to a higher tax rate. Um, because when you get down to a weighted average cost of capital, um, you've got a bigger tax shield when you calculate your cost of debt. So there is a mitigating impact there that you yeah. could argue that your cost of capital would fall. So it's kind of making sure that you are capturing all of these elements in your valuation. And it's just so much more than what I have seen an awful lot of in the past mm -hmm. is um, effective tax rates, which are effectively last year's one. Mm -hmm. or an average of the last three years, and then that driver is just applied into the forecast years, into year five, captured the terminal value, going through into perpetuity, and you've taken tax out of the equation effectively. You've taken it out of the, the questions that you could ask mm. um, of that company. And you know, that's when um, you know, I, I, I think it's a missed opportunity. Now, you know, valuation is um you know a conflicting experience for me because part of me wants to ask you know lots of detailed questions but also part of me wants to completely flip the logic on its head and say okay my ability to forecast as a human being is limited mm. um let me have a look at what the market's pricing in and let me try and reverse engineer what i think is in the stock price and okay. then you can sometimes isolate, well, actually, maybe the market isn't pricing in U.S. tax reform or G7, G20, OEC, D tax reform. Again, there is an observation there possibly that we can pull out. And that's just one single unit of analysis, you know, and you and you know, we work together. I mean, you know, what we're, you know, you're never going to, you know, come up with one single unit of analysis and then go, okay, let's go buy that stock or let's go sell that stock. It's just one lens that we're looking through that we would supplement with other lenses in the analysis that we would work through. Yep, that's correct. And in the interest of time, let's yep. wrap this up. Um, yep. Jeff, if there's three things you want to Think about when you think about tax, what would they be? Um, keep abreast of what's happening with international tax codes. Um, the effective tax rate is yours to use, but use it wisely. You know, there's always a story and a behavior behind it. If you've got flat effective tax rates, my guess would be you could probably do that with a bit more of an insightful lens. So that's definitely two. Um, can I come up with my third one? Um, I think two is good enough, to be honest, is think about the effective tax rates, think about the behavior, be consistent in the narrative, and mm. make sure the behavior is reflected in the and ask questions, run sensitivity and scenario analysis, and I think you'll get a bit more insight into your work. All right. Thanks for the time today, Jeff. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Stay tuned to our next one. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you. Eating. Cheers.
This content has been prepared by UBS AG, its subsidiaries, and or affiliates, and is purely informational in nature. It is not investment research and does not contain an investment recommendation nor investment or professional advice. It is not an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity, and you should seek your own financial, tax, and legal advice before engaging in any such activity. UBS has no responsibility to you in relation to this content. It has no regard to your personal circumstances or investment objectives, and receiving it does not imply any form of client relationship with UBS for any legal, regulatory, or tax purpose. This content is not intended for distribution into any jurisdiction where to do so would be contrary to law or regulation. UBS does not accept any liability over the content of such material or reliance upon any information contained herein. The views and opinions expressed by any guest speaker or third party are not those of UBS. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over any such views and opinions expressed by such persons. This content is the valuable intellectual property of UBS, and UBS specifically prohibits the redistribution of it in whole or in part without its prior written permission. Copyright UBS 2021. The key symbol and UBS are among the registered and unregistered trademarks of UBS, all rights reserved.